Uh, open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are continuing our series through 1 Corinthians. And I want to give a disclaimer before I begin today. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with a lot of issue, issues head on. Uh, particularly if, if you're new with us, like if you just started coming two Sundays ago, uh, the, the four sermons or five sermons that we're engaged with through from about 1 Corinthians chapter 5 through the end of chapter 7 are dealing a lot with marriage, with sexuality, with homosexuality, uh, with, with divorce. Uh, and so this is not the only thing we talk about at this church, okay? I want you to know that. However, one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, is because it allows us to know what does God say on every issue. So as a church, we don't get to pick and choose. I like that passage and I like that passage, but I, I'm not comfortable preaching that. I'm not comfortable preaching that, so I'll avoid it. Rather, we say, what does God say? Let's go through the entire book and preach every word. And so that's what we're doing right now. We're preaching through an entire book of the Bible. Secondly, uh, today's message has a lot to say about marriage and a lot to say about sex. In fact, sex is basically the primary theme. Let me just get the awkwardness out there right away. I'm preaching on sex today. Okay, there you go. But uh, with that, uh, there's another disclaimer I want to say. When we talk about marriage uh, in a room like this, uh, there's a lot of wounds uh, and I, I'm very well aware of that. We're not only talking about sex, but we're talking about God's good design for marriage. And uh, when I preach on this, I want to preach with great clarity. One of my aims as a pastor is to be unashamed of what the Bible says. Uh, I, I, I'm really not too concerned with being sensitive about what the Bible says. I, I, I'm, I'm more interested in honoring God by preaching with clarity. But I also want to minister to the people that are in the room, knowing that people come from many different backgrounds and many different wounds. And by God's grace, I get to be your pastor, and I know a lot of the wounds. And so as I'm writing a message like this, I want you to know I'm thinking of you in this room, those of you who have been divorced, those of you who are single and long to be married, who have longings in your heart, those of you who have experienced sex in a very abusive way, and, and are carrying with you all sorts of wrong thoughts of what God's design is. Um, I want you to know, before I even jump into this passage, you have been on my heart all week, and uh, I, I have a sense of burden, a, a Christ-filled burden, as I carry this message with you today. And so just know, I'm, I'm trying to push on two pedals today, one of unashamed truth. I don't care what culture says, I care what the Bible says, but at the same time, uh, absolute pastoral ministry. And so with that, let me pray again. Jesus, help us as we dig into your word today. We love you. We want to honor you. We want to know your word. And we want to worship the true God. Not the God that people want you to be, but the God that you are. And what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. The opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we read an account of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, the very first marriage is actually the first two people that were made, Adam and Eve. It was the first marriage. And uh, right there, and we also notice in the first relationship, in the first marriage, that's the first relationship God or Satan ever went after, isn't it? Satan's plan was to go after a marriage, to attack a marriage, a good marriage. And Satan attacks, and his, his plans haven't changed all that much. He continues to attack the idea of marriage today. But we read these verses in Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh. That's speaking of the sexual union between a husband and a wife. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and were not ashamed. Now that language of naked and unashamed is a bit of the resounding theme that I'm gonna to try to thread through this entire message. Uh, on the one hand, there's a, there's a physical nudity that was taking place there, but I think the idea here is much more than just the nudity of being without clothing. There was a nakedness, there was a vulnerability, a total transparency between the two of them, between Adam and Eve. It was, I'm not holding anything back, I'm not hiding anything from you. There's no corner of my life. There's no corner of my thoughts. I'm utterly naked before you, Adam says, to his bride. And that is met by the safety of being unashamed. The two of them see the fullness of who they are in both physical and spiritual nudity, nakedness, vulnerability before each other. And it's met by a complete unashamedness. It's this freedom of saying, this is who I am, and I know that you receive me exactly as I am. Notice the safety that is in that first marriage. They were unashamed. But before long, this story drastically changes. Sin is brought into the equation. And this idea of being naked and unashamed, we see that it was first attacked both in their relationship vertically with God and then in their relationship horizontally with each other. First with God. We, re- we find, after sin has come into the story, we find Adam hiding among the bushes from God. And listen to why it says he's hiding. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. Adam says, I heard the sound of you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam's suddenly hiding. He's absolutely ashamed to be naked before God both physically but spiritually, knowing God sees everything, and he's ashamed of that. So he's hiding. His vertical relationship with God is broken, but watch this. By the end of Genesis chapter three, we read that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now their nakedness is gone. That that joy of being fully vulnerable and fully unashamed before each other is broken first and foremost with God, and now the ripple effect of that with their relationship with each other in this marriage is that now there's not being naked with each other, not being fully vulnerable with each other, and in whatever vulnerability they have with each other, a fearfulness, some kind of hiding. You see the brokenness? When you leave Genesis chapter three, there ought to be a sense of foreboding. But that foreboding is not left completely alone. In the midst of the foreboding, in the midst of the horror of what was lost of being naked and unashamed with each other, is this glimmer of hope that one day God will do something to restore vertically and horizontally with each other what they had in the Garden of Eden. The glimmer of hope that one day one will come who will crush the serpent's head, Genesis chapter 3. Now, the theme of today's text is marriage. Particularly, we're going to be talking about sex within, man, within marriage. 
And uh, if you know me, I like to take sledgehammers to culture around us. I I like to expose culture and the false ideas that culture has in here so that we can think rightly. Today's message, actually, I'm not going to spend too much time doing that because I think that we actually don't need that all that much on this topic. Just a a few brief notes up front. I think it's very apparent the, uh, the bad ideas that culture has on what marriage is all about, on what sexuality is all about. I think you don't have to open your eyes too much. In fact, I think if you're not a Christian, and even if you're in this room today, and you just take a moment and think about what does the Bible say about sexuality, I think you'd come in here and you say, yeah, they got some bad ideas. They're getting it wrong. You see the billboards, you see the TV shows, you see the reality TV shows, you see whatever. You see the music that we sing, you see the movies that we see. You'd say, it's not working. Depression is up. Divorce is up. Abuse is up, right? The ideas of culture are paving death into culture. And so one of the things I want to do today is not necessarily harp too long, though we'll come back to this, on the bad ideas of culture, but I want to lift God's vision of marriage up for us. I think if we can understand the beauty of what God invites us into in the pages of Scripture, specifically in marriage, particularly through the sexual relationship of a husband and wife with each other, I think and I hope that you leave this place today saying, that's good. That's what I want. That's what I want for my children. That's what I want for the community around me. I want them to know God's vision because it's beautiful. I want to hold it up high for all of us to say, let's chase after that together as a community. Now, a bit of context for the passage. Let's begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 1. We read this. Now let me get my page here. First Corinthians 7 verse 1. Now concerning the matters of which you wrote. Pause. Paul now is turning to a new part of his, of his book that we're reading. And he is responding to a letter that they had originally written him. And in the letter the Corinthian church wrote him, they had a couple questions. Right? They are like, Paul, can you help us out? We're struggling here. We're a new church. We don't quite know what to do. Here's one of them. Paul quotes them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's not his advice. Notice that's in quotation marks. So he's saying, okay, you wrote this to me. It's good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman. Now, all the way through verse 9, he's going to be responding to that particular line of questioning that they had. Now, what was likely happening in the church of Corinth at the time? Well, a handful of things. Uh, First of all, there was a form of asceticism that was building in the church. Think of this early church. Uh, They they didn't have the deep theological books that we have available to us. They had the Old Testament. It was a mostly Jewish group, but also Gentiles, non-Jews from the area who were part of the church, and they were figuring out life together, and they were doing it in the midst of a very hyper-sexualized culture. Now, we're going to get to that in a moment. But what was taking place is that there was a group of people in the church who were suddenly saying, you know what true holiness would look like? I mean, let's get after worshiping Jesus the right way. Surely, abstinence from sex would be the most holy thing we could do. Now, you can imagine two problems with this. First of all, imagine, for example, if there's a woman who finds herself now a new believer in Christ who has a non-believing husband who's not a part of this early church. Okay? non-believing husband out there, the, the wife is coming. And actually, by the end of this chapter, we're going to get to Paul commenting on those who are believers who are married to non-believers. 
So likely this is a situation. And you get the wife in the church and the wife's going home to her husband saying, hey, look, I've decided to follow Jesus. There's no more sexual relations with us. Well, you can imagine the husband saying, I don't too much like this cult that you've joined, right? That likely would have been a problem. And so is there truth there? Is that really what Jesus has called us to? Secondly, you can imagine, not even married to an unbeliever, you can imagine a husband and a wife coming in and both of them saying, okay, like, is that really what Jesus has called us to? Is, is this the idea? Now, not only that, that was the issue that was going on. So with those questions, they then write to Paul, Paul, can you clarify for us? Is this what holiness looks like, abstaining from all sexual relations? Additionally, Corinth has a particular context that we need to know. To be Corinthian is to be highly sensualized and sexualized. That's like a tagline for what Corinth was all about. And actually, I think Chicago, modern day American cities are very Corinthian. I think that's just kind of the nature of what uh, Corinth was all about. And what do I mean by that? Well, Corinth was a port town in the early Mediterranean in the first century. So it was a place where people were coming from all over the world. They had a, a major temple to the goddess Aphrodite, which is the goddess of love in, the old, in, the, in those days. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of temple prostitutes around that temple, but then also in brothels all around Corinth. Wherever you went, you would see women who were selling themselves in a religious prostitution to anyone who would come. It was considered a city where you could experience, experience sexuality in a way that was religious as a whole. By the way, I see a handful of people standing in the back. There, there's a number of seats up here and then also along this side as well. I don't know if that's you. Just want to let you know, feel free to take a seat. I don't want you standing the whole time. Now, it was a highly sexualized culture, but also let's get specific with what that meant. Not only was there tons of prostitution, uh, but the, in those days when a man got married to a woman, the expectations were that the woman was expected to be a one-woman man. That was the language that was used. But men were many women men, even in marriage. And so it was not uncommon for the priest or whoever did the marriage to take the young virgin, the young woman aside before the marriage and say, look, honey, your man, when he commits adultery with you, just know it's not that he doesn't love you, it's just that he has needs. That was a common, that was actually part of the script that priests in the day would say to a woman. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the Bible, when Paul says that men need to be one woman men, he's directly contradicting that language. That men in those days were supposed to be many women men. That was the honorable thing in that day, okay? Secondly, wives' positions in the marriage, well, there were a number of roles that women played in that day, but one of them particularly was to be available to their husband in that way. That was it. And it, whatever the husband wanted, whatever he needed, that was her role. There was no voice that the woman had in that, whatever. Number three, homosexuality was a rampant part of Greek culture in that day. Many of the great Greek uh, poets and scholars that we quote, homosexuality was a regular part of their life. Guys like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, but also a number of the other ones, uh, that was kind of woven into the fabric of Greek culture among men. Lastly, uh, there was a very common practice of pedophilia, particularly homosexual pedophilia, that was normalized in Corinth, where uh, it was honorable. It was considered normal for a man to have a wife, to have a number of prostitutes, but then also have a number of young boys that were part of his cohort that he would abuse sexually for his pleasure whenever he needed. And that was just part of being a boy in those days. You had to go through that season of life, particularly boys who were in slavery. Okay. Now, if all of that is giving you a picture of what context would have been like for this early church, you can imagine why they were asking these questions, 
right? They're coming into now, okay, I worship Jesus. Jesus gave his life for me on the cross, and I want to, I truly want to honor God. I'm coming out of that. Now, I'm looking at Corinth all around me. You know what? I mean, there's a lot of terrible stuff out there in Corinth. Maybe what God says is just avoid it altogether. It's all filthy. Just no sex. Is that it, Paul? So you can totally understand why they were writing this and the questions they had. Now, let me connect us to our day for just a moment here. We are living in a Corinthian culture. And in some ways, it's not as bad, right? We have not normalized yet, though these are conversations that do happen in back channels. We have not normalized pedophilia the way that it was normalized there. Certainly, you can make arguments of the way it's creeping into culture. But we have not normalized it the way it was in Corinth. But what I would say is that this, this device and our laptops and our iPads have made what was a Corinthian culture available to every person on demand, this device, and to our children. The average age a young boy looks at pornography on a phone is eight years old. I think the average age that he receives and gives a sexting message is something like 10 years old, okay? Now, these are important things to know. That's destroying our children's minds and setting them up for highly abusive and broken sexual and marital relationships, so as a church, we should be asking some similar questions, right? Like, like the Corinthian church, we should be asking our pastors and, and the people who are helping lead us, what do we do, right? It's a good thing that they were asking these questions. They were saying, what do we do, Paul? Like, like that's terrible out there. And I think we all should be saying too, what do we do? It's terrible. How do we contradict this? What? And the answer is this, God has a beautiful vision for marriage and a beautiful vision for sex, Celebrate it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't water it down. Set it as the ideal, not only for Christians, but for the whole world. Let them see it and then live it, marriages. Live it so that the whole world can see beautiful biblical marriages and bring healing to the city out there. That's what we do, okay? Now, in the rest of this passage, I think what Paul does is he's gonna give us three reasons why his main idea is true. I think his main idea is something like this. Sex is God's good gift designed for the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Sex is God's good gift designed specifically for marriage in the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Now, Paul is going to give us three reasons for that. Reason number one, sex, according to God's design, helps fight against ungodly temptation. Sex, according to God's design, helps fight against ungodly temptation. Let me read the whole passage, and then we'll dig into the first few verses here. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should not give to his wife, or the husband should give to her, his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, speaking of his singleness. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better 
Wait, no, I, I skipped the verse. As a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself I am, but each, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Reason number one, sex according to God's design, helps fight against ungodly temptation. Verse two, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, the term that is used there is sexual temptation. We've come across already in 1 Corinthians. It's the Greek term porneia. That refers to all sexual relationships outside of marriage between a husband and a wife. So everything. That's uh, a man and a woman who are uh, sleeping together outside of marriage or in an engagement season or anything outside of marriage. That would be homosexual relationships because that would not be considered inside of the biblical ideal for marriage between one man and one woman. Pornea, that would include uh, anything looking at your phone pornography where essentially you become a many woman or a many man, man or woman, where you're engaging in brothel-like uh, experiences just in the privacy of yourself. So Everything that's outside of sex between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage is considered porneia. And he calls that a temptation. In fact, he uses the plural form of it. It's temptations. It's, a, it's an interesting grammatical thing he does there. He's basically looking out at a Corinthian culture and saying, it's everywhere. It's, it's just everywhere. Because of the temptations that are everywhere, it's good for a man to have a woman, for a man to have a wife. Now, what he's saying is, don't settle for cheap knockoffs. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, there are temptations. There are cheap knockoffs that you can get everywhere that won't cost you as much as a marriage will cost you. Because marriage is dying to yourself. Marriage takes a lot of work. And if you want a cheap knockoff, you can get on any corner with one of the 10,000 temple prostitutes that are in Corinth, as Paul's saying. Don't settle for the cheap knockoff. It'll destroy you It'll destroy whatever marriage you're trying to have and it'll destroy your, your family's life. Instead, do it God's way. Do it God's way. Now, this is not new. Paul's not making something up. This is all the way through the Bible. We, say this, we see the same message. So, believe it or not, there's an entire book in the Bible that's given to the, the romantic relationship between a husband and a wife. Song of Solomon. Yes, it is X-rated. You read Song of Solomon, there is, it, it is a absolute... Uh, everything that you want to know about a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, Solomon admires every part of his wife's body in great detail in that. And that is right in the Bible, the romantic relationship between a husband and a wife. And what do we read in Song of Solomon chapter two, verse seven? It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, very Song of Solomon language here, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's the theme don't awaken love until it pleases. What's that theme of Song of Solomon? Don't have sex until you're married. That's the whole point. Save it. Song of Solomon is saying this. If you want the beauty of Song of Solomon in your marriage, save sex for marriage. That's the point. Then it goes on in ch chapter 2, verse 15. It says, it's talking to the woman at this point who's now engaged. She's about getting ready to see her husband and get married to him and they're preparing for the union of the two of them. She's speaking now to other women in her life and she's referring to herself as a vineyard. The idea here is that she's in, uh, in her years of fertility, right? She's young. She's saying, I'm ready to have a husband. 
And she says this, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. What's this saying? She's saying, look, there's all these little foxes that want to run in and take the fruit before it's time to take the fruit. But she looks at the other women in her life. She says, don't let the foxes in. Don't let those temptations into your life. Don't settle for it. Because, because if, you, if you save it for marriage, it's going to be beautiful, Song of Solomon says. But if, if you give the cheap version, if you, little, if you let the little temptations in and, and you settle for the cheap knockoffs, it's not going to be as good, even though you think it's going to be. This is the same story from Genesis to Revelation. <clears throat> Paul is not saying anything new. I was reading on thenot.com as I was preparing for this. If you know the knot, that means you've probably uh, gotten married recently in the last 10 years, okay? Thenot.com is a marriage website. It handles the administrative details for weddings uh, for folks. Uh, and they were talking about the average age of marriage uh, that they see through their website. Now, this might not actually be true. It could just be their demographic, who they administer to. However, this is quite startling. They say the average age of marriage today in America is 34 years old. 34 years old, in 2021. They write this. People are taking longer to find themselves, which is a good thing. Notice the not.com has made a moral declaration. That's what they've done. They have determined that this is a good thing. A little training for you pastorally. People are making moral declarations all over the place. They're saying this is a good thing. Well, how do we know if it's a good thing or not? Let's go to scripture. That will define for us what's good or not, not what the not.com says. You need to be trained to see someone saying a moral definition of what is good and filter it through the word of God. So this is a good thing. Why not.com? Tell us. Well, they say this. By the time people are getting married, they have a better sense of who they really are, meaning they're more secure in their career and their sense of self the older they get. And that helps them make good decisions with their life partner. Life is not so traditional anymore. Many couples are both working. Therefore, they are getting married for the first time later. Okay. Now, the thing about it is, is most Christians would read that and say, actually, that doesn't sound that bad. That sounds pretty good. And let me correct that for you. Everything about that was bad. Why? Because biblical marriage is not about a very independent person and another independent person living two independent lives very strongly independently of each other. Marriage is about two people who are dependent and determining to self-sacrifice their life to serve and lift the other person up to see them reach their best version of themselves in light of who Jesus has defined them to be and depending on one another, forming a life that's integrally dependent and woven to each other, merging bank accounts, merging life, merging home with no out. You're not independent right? So that if things go south, you can survive on your own. You're dependent so that things can't go south. And when they go south, you need the other person. Do you see the difference? The biblical vision of marriage is absolute dependence and service towards one another. The culture's idea of marriage and why they say it's a good thing to wait to get married is so that you can get strong and independent and get money on your own and get career on your own. It's absolutely foreign to the Bible. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, let me make sure I say this with clarity here. Some of you are struggling with sexual temptation because you've bought the, the, the model of the world which says get very independent in life, get strong, build money, and save marriage for later. Can I call you to something better? Get married. <laughs> if you are waiting until you have your life in order, 
until you have enough money. God calls you into marriage and it's beautiful. Find a spouse, not because you're independent and now, now you're bringing that independence in, but because you're dependent and you want to demonstrate the gospel in a marriage to support and lift each other up. Get married younger. Do you see that? Now, let me say a word here. Paul goes on and talks about singleness. We have many single people in our church, and what I just said can hurt some people, so I want to minister to you. Many people in our church would love to say, yeah, I want to get married. Like, I'm waiting. I'm single. Like, I just want someone to marry me. Okay, let me minister to you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 to 9, he says this. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all, that all were as I myself am, single. But each has his own gift. Notice, what do you just call singleness? A gift. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me say a few things on those verses. Number one, uh, singleness is a gift. Now, some of you are single because you bought the not.com's lie and you're just waiting to get your life in order. And to you, I say, get out there, find a spouse, and marry them in the name of Jesus. Okay? That's my advice to you. Don't wait. If you're a young man, uh, I want you to know there are many young women in this room who would love for them to be, to be asked out on a date. I'm getting some chuckles because you know it's true. Young men, do it, okay? Find a spouse. Now, to many in this room who are single and you're saying, I, I long to, to live out what the Bible says about marriage. I wanna say this. The God of the Bible knows your longings far better than you do. And, and your singleness, two things. First of all, he knows you. He knows your longings. He knows your tears. He knows that you've been tempted because guys in the church haven't been asking you out. I'm speaking mostly to women. There's probably some single guys here as well I need to speak to as well. But I know the stories because I've, I've counseled many of you. He knows that maybe you've been waiting for a guy to ask you out and just hasn't happened in the church so you've been tempted to go to the bars or you've been tempted to download whatever the swipe app is that everyone's using these days, Right? And, and the thing is, is you're, you're sitting there crying out to God saying, God, like, I'm getting older. Like, where are you? I just want to speak to you for a second. And we have a whole, we have more sermons coming up on singleness, but let me take a moment. God knows the inner longings of your heart. He knows it better than you do. And he is a good God who loves you, who has a wonderful plan for your life. And he can and does minister to you in your longings. Hold on to Christ in those longings. But secondly, I want to say this. Singleness is also a gift. One of my best friends is Pastor Joe Riccardi. Joe's in his 50s. He is a single man. Now, how is singleness a gift in his life? I'm married to my wonderful wife. I've got three kids. My main priority in life is caring for my wife and my three children. I, I am a pastor and I minister to many of you, but also I've got priorities, meaning I have to care for my wife and my kids. Most of my evenings, when I get home from work, I'm home with my family, ministering to my family, tucking my kids in, making sure my children are being raised properly, right? This is what I'm doing. I have certain things I cannot do in ministry because I'm married and because I chose that and I have one gift. My gift is marriage. I'm blessing my, my family and my wife. Joe, in his singleness, every evening is an opportunity to bless the kingdom of God. He is out and about. 
And his church flourishes because that man is out meeting and greeting and playing on softball leagues with non-believers and being in people's lives and being in homes. When I'm at home with my family, I have my gift, he has his. And both are being used for the kingdom of God. If I can encourage you, if you are in singleness right now, perhaps you won't always be, what does it mean for you to see your singleness as a gift from the Lord? To be used to further the kingdom of God, to cherish it and know that Christ is in it with you. Reason number two, Sex is an opportunity to serve your spouse. Sex is an opportunity to serve your spouse. Chapter seven, verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And then it goes on in verse four. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband did not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Okay, this is fascinating language. First of all, when it talks about conjugal rights, the actual language behind our English translation is, um, it says, give to your wives, give to your husbands what you owe them. It's owing. Husbands, give to your wives what you owe them. It's owing. Notice in this, what did I tell you about first Corinthian, or, or in Corinthian culture? What was the wife's role in a marriage? Well, one of them was to do whatever the husband wanted her to do, okay? It was, it was quite a toxic, abusive form of marriage where the husband essentially domineered over the wife and whatever she wanted mattered nothing to her. It was, only, it was the husband's marriage. Do you notice in here how it's two people that owe each other something? The husband or the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. She gifts that to her husband, But the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. He gifts that to his wife. Notice the beauty of biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is this unbelievable giving up of your life to another person where your body is not your own anymore. Not just your body, but your life. One of the things I say when I I officiate a wedding is I say this, I say, look, marriage is looking at another person in all their beauty and all their, what, what you love about them, but also in the, in the vulnerability of seeing their weaknesses and really knowing them. I mean, marriage is the, the most intimate space for caring and, and knowing a person, seeing them in sickness and seeing them in weakness and, and seeing their bad moods and their good moods and, and seeing their bad habits and their good habits. And I mean, that's marriage, right? It, it's two lives coming together in the most intimate way, including a sexual way. And in in marriage, a husband and a wife look at each other and say, I see what you can become in Christ if I give up everything I want in life. That I could do, not that, that that sounded wrong. If If I give up everything I could do if I were to remain single and I give myself over to you to lift you up and serve you and see who you can become. Biblical marriage. Okay? You die to yourself and you give your body and your life to another person and you say, it's yours. It's not mine. And then the other person looks back at you and says, in perfect beauty and safety, it's yours. It's not mine. Now in that relationship, there's such safety and beauty because two people are looking at each other and saying, not what I want, but what you want. Not what I need, but what you need. Not what I desire in life, but what you desire in life. I'm teaching my kids this in the slightest way, not sexually, in in the slightest way. There's a song we sing that talks about giving to others 
uh, what they want. And there's a line in it that says, no, you take the biggest cookie. <laughs> you take the biggest cookie on the plate. And what am I trying to teach him? It's this idea of, it's not what I want. It's what does the other person want? Well, the place where that gets lived out in its most beautiful form is in a marriage where two people die to what they could be doing on their own and say, I'm in this to serve you and to love you. Sex is to be enjoyed. Sex is to be enjoyed because in it, two people are serving the other person the way the entire marriage is structured to serve the other person. Marriage is two people coming together and dying to themselves. Now, why is sex outside of marriage such high risk? Well, because sex outside of the covenant of marriage, because there's no covenant, what you're doing is you're, you're bringing the absolute most vulnerable place in life, which is a sexual intimate relationship. And then you're, you're, you're experiencing that without the safety of the covenant. The covenant says, no matter how you change, no matter how your body changes, no matter how you change in life, no matter how your personality changes, no matter what new hobbies you pick up, no matter what new friends you develop, no matter what mistakes you make, I'm not leaving. Why? Because I'm a Christian. And because in the covenant of marriage, I am dying to myself to lift you up and serve you. So whatever comes, I'm in it. Rain or shine, I'm in it. Prosperity or adversity, I'm in it. Riches or poverty, I'm in it. Right? Outside of marriage, there's no covenant. And so it's absolute fear-based. Because at any moment, this person who you fully exposed yourself to, who you feel all the happiness of what sexual intimacy brings you, you feel that they're going to be there, but they haven't committed to anything. Which means the second you change, or the second you let them down, or the second you're not good enough, or the second your body changes, well, I'm gone. Right? I never signed up for the commitment in the first place. And so it puts you in the most dangerous, fearful place. Notice it's not naked and unashamed. It's naked and fearful. This is why Song of Solomon says, do not awaken love until at the right time. Save it for marriage, the covenant, the safety, where it can be lifted up of two people serving one another. The biblical vision is beautiful. No matter how you change, no matter how the other person changes, you're committed to each other. Reason number three. Marriage, God's design, sex within marriage, is a symbol of oneness. It's a symbol of oneness. Verses four and five. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over her, his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. I wonder, I'd be curious how many people have actually lived this out. That to deprive one another of sexual relations for the, sin, the, the one simple purpose in marriage of fasting. To just take a short break and say, you know what? I want to just focus on the Lord for a season, but not for too long because I don't want temptation to get in the way, but, but just to, to dig into the Lord. What a practice that would be in a marriage from time to time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do not deprive one another except for what purpose? Well, to, from time to time to remind yourself of what marriage is all about in the first place to remind yourself that this is a reflection of the gospel, of what Christ has done for you. And because we all have a tendency to forget the centrality of the gospel in our life, from time to time, we go for fasting. We, we, maybe we fast from food for a day or for a week, or we fast from coffee for a day, or, or whatever it is that we're fasting from. For some of us, it's in marriage. We fast from sexual relations for a time so that we can refocus our hearts and minds and draw near to Christ in order to go back into those spaces in our life so that the gospel will be central in our life. That's the 
purpose of all of it. The theme of oneness is woven into, it's woven into what marriage is all about because marriage is a picture of the gospel. How is that? There's two, there's two pictures in the New Testament that are primarily used to describe the good news of Jesus Christ. One of them is adoption, okay? We talked about that already today. The other one is marriage. It's marriage. And, and the greater marriage, every earthly marriage points to the greater marriage of Jesus Christ to his church. And so every earthly marriage ought to be living out in some way, in some shadowy way, some reflective way, the way Jesus the great groom loves his bride, the church. And it's oneness. The language we actually use is the un- our union with Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ, he fully casts your sins away from you and he unites himself to you by giving you the Holy Spirit. And he, can't, he, he, he promises he'll never untangle it. It can never get undone. This is the covenant he goes into with you. The cost of it, Jesus Christ gave up what he had. Philippians chapter two, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, washed his disciples' feet, bled and died in order for his bride to be made purified so he could take all of her sin on the cross. He died forgiving her for her sin so that she would be presented pure and spotless on the day of her judgment. Every earthly marriage lives that out. A husband and a wife look at each other and they die to who they were before and they say, now I enter into this and I want to reflect Christ because my job is to hold your hand, bride, and walk you towards our finish line where Christ waits at the end of it on your judgment day. And I want to present you, my bride, as a pure and spotless uh, person before Christ. That's my aim, is to present you to Christ. Gregory of Nyssa writes of it this way, a great mystic of the past. He says this, because of what Christ has done, never again after all this will Adam blush when you call him. We read that passage. Never will he try to hide because his conscience reproaches him. Never will he seek concealment under the trees in the garden. For us that were heirs to Adam's sin, all has been changed to rejoicing. For man now has access to paradise and even to heaven itself. The whole creation, heaven and earth, is at once again in friendship. Its former differences forgotten. There is no doubt who it is that dresses the bride in her finery. It is, of course, Christ. He that is and that was and will be. When you trust in Jesus, here's what happens. Vertically, naked and unashamed is restored. You no longer have to hide because God sees you in all of your vulnerability, all of your weakness, all of your sin, all the mistakes you've made, even the stuff you come into a room like this and you say, I would never share that part of my life. He sees it all. You're totally naked before the God of heaven. And he says, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to be ashamed about because all of your sin was paid for on the cross. The relationship's perfectly restored. And now as Christians, you live that out on marriage. Now, as Christians, that's beginning to be restored in earthly marriage as well, where there's total vulnerability. And like Christ, you look at your bride, you look at your husband, and you say, I see all of your weakness, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm in this to serve you for the rest of my life. I get a front row seat to seeing this lived out right now in a pretty special way. My wife's grandfather and grandmother have been married for 65 years. 65 years. Met each other as teenagers. I've watched over the last uh, 10 years, my wife and I have been married coming on 12 years here soon. So I've watched the last 14, 15 years I've been in this family. Um, This couple growing in their love of Jesus together. I love going on vacation when they're there because, you know, they'll get out and he's got his big print Bible. 
and he'll sit across the table from his bride and they'll read a chapter together and then he'll ask her questions about it. He'll come home from church and he'll ask her questions about what, what she learned at church. And then he'll sit there and he'll pray and they'll pray these sweet, simple prayers. Pray for me, my ministry in Chicago. Pray for my bride. They'll pray for how many grandkids do they have, Sarah? Great grandkids? 17 of them running around across the U.S. Pray for everyone by name every day. It's pretty powerful. The grandmother had a stroke a few years ago. She hasn't been doing too well. She's recovering, uh, but some, some was lost in, in her older age. And just recently, about a month ago, she fell outside. She was going to get the newspaper, and uh, she fell and hit her head. And she's been in the hospital. She's, she's recovering, but it's slow. Put that picture up. Hopefully we can see this. All right, men. See that man? That's it. That's his bride of 65 years laying there in the hospital bed. He wakes up early in the morning. He does what he needs to do and grabs his newspaper. And the second that the uh, waiting hours or the visiting hours are open, he's already at the hospital door before his bride wakes up. He sits by her all day. He reads the paper to her, talks about Jesus with her, reads scripture with her, takes naps during the day with his paper on his chest, stays till they kick him out. Then he goes home, prays for his bride, takes care of his business at home, and he wakes up and does it again the next day. Let me say two things. Men, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, the bar is set very high for you. Don't lower it. Women, the bar is set high for you as well. This is not just about the men in the room. This is what marriage looks like. It's there for you as well. Particularly to the women, I want to say this. This is what you should expect from your husband. Husbands need this from you as well. We do. But this is what you should expect from your husband. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the wonderful image that you've given us of true marriage. God, I pray for this room, people in all different places in this conversation, wounds, hurting marriages, wounded marriages, singles who long to be married, those who have come from abusive pasts when it comes to sexual relationships, broken pasts, a thousand ways that this is falling on hurting hearts today, Lord. My prayer is that the biblical vision of marriage and the biblical vision of sexuality would so seep in our hearts as a community that we would do one thing alone, proclaim the name of Jesus. That we'd walk out of here saying, I want more of what Jesus has to say because it's good. Would your kingdom be established even more powerfully than it already has been in this place? In Christ's name, amen.